the axe of the blood god. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Axe of the Blood God, U.S. Gamer's official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Cap Bailey, and with me today is senior writer Bob Mackey. Hello, everybody. Why, hello. No Nadia this week, because she is taking a well-earned vacation. Um, so we're going to cover a whole bunch of topics in the RPG spectrum this week. We're going to do some RPG news. Um, we're going to talk a bit about Bob's localization feature from... Um, last week and we're going to cover a new feature that we're going to be doing for a few weeks here and SNES highlights in which we take a franchise like a long-running franchise that was around during the Super Nintendo era and we kind of talk about what did the Super Nintendo mean for that RPG franchise and in this case we'll be talking we'll be, we'll be starting with kind of the granddaddy of the JRPG Dragon Quest so the first bit of RPG news uh, that we should probably hit is we're going to say rest in peace to Manabu Daishima, who passed away at the only 45, which is kind of a tragedy. Um, so he was responsible for the field art for Chrono Trigger, the 3D map design for Dirge of Cerberus and Final Fantasy XII, and the world graphic design for Secret of Mana. His final title was Parasite Eve, The Third Birthday. Uh, I gotta say, if like he was responsible for like the field art of Final Fantasy XII and Chrono Trigger, he was really darn good at what he did. Yeah, he was actually. I saw Gama Sutra had a little bio of him, and he's he's in the developer room at the end of Chrono Trigger, the ultimate ending that you can get. You can meet him, and uh, he's he's in that room. He just says, "Buy buy more SquareSoft games. Look for upcoming <laughs> SquareSoft games." Uh, what a shame. Yeah, um, but it goes to show you, like the the people who make the things you like the most, you probably don't know their names. You know, you don't know who makes the sprite graphics or the background art and things like that. So it's important that we remember these people, uh, not just the director, not just the the big egos out there. Yeah, we like to get into auteur theory a lot with video games. So you're right. Uh, we forget that there's probably the artisans in the background who are responsible for like the little things that you love and i would say that uh we don't necessarily think about it but certainly the field art in the world graphic design can make a big difference especially in a classical jrpg mm-hmm. all right uh next piece of news dragon quest 10 confirmed for the nx yeah in japan though right <laughs> let's, yeah let's, let's say that at least yeah it's not coming out here I, I was I was remarking what a weird time to be alive. Like Dragon Quest X comes out in 2012 as an MMORPG for the Wii. Like that could never happen outside of the context of 2012 or 2011. Why? Why amazing. would you say like the context of 2012 or 2011? I mean, just like um, they jumped on the Wii, you know, as it was taking off, and by the time Dragon Quest X was done, the Wii was in the state that it was. And that's why it exists as a, as a Wii MMORPG. Of course, it's on the PC as well in Japan, but it started on the Wii. It just feels like a very, just a, a choice that was made when uh, during those first crazy years of the Wii that, um, you know, probably didn't really work out for them, you know, much later. Remember when, down the road. remember when it was confirmed for the Wii U and we were like, oh man, Dragon yeah. Quest MMO for the Wii U. Like, that's a killer app right there. <laughs> We won't be talking about this on the podcast, I don't think, but Little King Story and a number of other games where developers were skeptical about the Wii, and um, then it had an amazing first two years, so everyone jumped onto development, and by the time their games were out, like uh, No More Heroes, things like that, Mad World, the party had ended, and <laughs> they were out of luck. So that that was like a lot of Wii-exclusive games like that, like Xenoblade Chronicles, Dragon Quest X, uh, Pandora's Tower, Last Story, all of these games that... We're trying to take advantage of the Wii's longevity that never really was in the cards for that system. I mean, we say that the Wii didn't have any longevity, but it was still selling like crazy through 2009. True, but the people who were buying Wii's did not want to buy The Last Story or Xenoblade. They wanted Wii Sports. They wanted Wii Fit. Uh, maybe something to shut the kids up like Mario Kart, but they were not looking for those third-party exclusive games. Yeah, and then we had that nice little uh, Wii RPG like run between, what was it, 
Last Story and Xenoblade Chronicles. And if you want to count it, Pandora's Tower. Yeah, sure. Why not? It was like bang, bang, bang. But it all came out in like 2011, 2012 when um, the party definitely was over yeah. by then. So that's um, for sure. And to the point where Nintendo almost didn't bring those games out for some reason, even though it was down to bringing a Dragon Quest board game. <laughs> yeah, oh boy. <laughs> yeah, uh, not a Dragon Quest board game, but it was by the creator of Dragon Quest. Yeah, it was the Itagaki, Ita, Ita, Itagaki Street, I think. I don't know. I forget what you call it. But uh, I wanted yeah. to like that game. But hey, maybe if you're if you're asking me to play a four-hour board game, let me save halfway through <laughs> at some point. I was like, what, you, you literally can't do that? What is this? Yeah, but uh, Dragon Quest X for the NX, um, probably not coming out here in the U.S., right? Uh, I think that ship has sailed. I, I feel like Dragon Quest is such a, such a niche product to begin with, to the point where uh, they're replacing the orchestrated soundtrack in the 3DS version for us. It's just going to be straight up MIDI, uh, or MIDI, however you want to say it. I, I feel like if they're cutting costs that slim, localizing an MMO plus three plus years worth of extra content is way not even in the cards for dragon quest yeah and mmorpgs in general like i mean as a genre it's still viable but it's certainly not where it used to be no and certainly not on a console that's for <laughs> I, sure i feel like final fantasy 14 is kind of like the peak of where you're going to get with a console mmo at this point yeah they've done a very good job of making it playable on a console but um that it feels like an outlier like uh blizzard was never interested in bringing world of warcraft to consoles which felt kind of odd to me but i guess it worked out for them they weren't losing money really yeah they weren't losing money and i mean world of warcraft is a complex and very customizable game and that would have like been all, all of that would have been lost in like a ps2 or xbox 360 port yeah they'd have to... dragon quest 11 was okay on the ps2 11 oh final fantasy 11 right final fantasy 11 yeah, i don't know how i assume you had to have a keyboard and mouse to play that game but uh, dragon quest 10 on the other hand actually did pretty well in japan um and as all dragon quest games do i had totally forgotten about it until i was in a convenience store while i was in japan last month and i just randomly saw dragon quest 10 like a uh, poster like saying to you can get in-game items like through a promotion at the convenience store i'm like holy crap dragon quest 10 is not only still a thing but it's still getting promoted at convenience stores wow i believe there's even a, a 3ds port i think you can even play it on a 3ds which is nuts that is nuts but it was designed for uh, a console controller but like this kind of irks me for as much as this probably is not a great game i still at least wanted to try it because just having final fantasy stuff made me play final fantasy 14 and it got me into mmos for the first time in my life so i feel like i at least want to play this game for like a month i never will i, I i'm not going to learn japanese to play dragon quest 10 but i, I feel like uh i, I wish no, there was you a... should and they should like write about it uh, yes i'm sure that will get millions of hits millions <laughs> yeah but uh i just feel like oh it's the one dragon quest game i literally can never play and that that kind of bothers me a little bit well, by all accounts, it wasn't actually that great. Yeah. Um, Final Fantasy fourteen was a much ended up being a much better game. Uh, Dragon Quest ten was pretty old school uh, MMORPG experience. That's what um, I've heard. Yeah. Very grindy. So, so there it goes. Um, if it never comes out for the NX, I won't be all that sad. However, uh, I do. I would like to see Dragon Quest eleven on the NX, especially if all of the rumors of it being portable, uh, portable friendly console is true oh god yes and um but again, so far hasn't been really confirmed not confirmed for the u.s even in any form yet uh, give me my dragon quest 11 yeah but again like we we said on past episodes like if you want to see these games by builders by seven and eight when they come to 3ds like show show square enix that you want these games because uh they're not going to care unless you vote with your wallet well, the fact that Dragon Quest Builders is coming out in the U.S. should be kind of positive, right? Like, if anything didn't come out here, it would be that. I feel like the the Minecraft connection makes that even makes that a more likely choice than like something like Seven and the and the much smaller localization. I think like I, I feel like they'd be willing to take a risk on that and not a traditional remake for a 3DS. But I'm glad they did both. I'm glad they're bringing both over. I am too, um, and I think that. Dragon Quest at this point is well known enough that it 
is not quite the risky proposition to come out. It's never gonna, it's never going to top out in the same way as like a Final Fantasy game can in the U.S. But it still has a very loyal fan base. Yeah, hell, think- if Monster Hunter is getting localized, then Dragon Quest should be localized. I was about to say Monster Hunter. Like, it does feel like Monster Hunter in that it will never be ever be as big as it is or was in Japan. But it's got enough of a enough of a group that knows about it and is willing to proselytize to other people that it's it's worthwhile for them to bring it over here. Well, Monster Hunter's uh, potential has always been artificially capped here in the U.S. because yeah. we just don't think of handheld consoles as multiplayer machines um we want to play those kinds of games on the pc and on the consoles and so like i've always felt that if it had come out on say the xbox 360 or the playstation 4 that and had been like optimized for those consoles and had good online infrastructure that it would have done much much better because the concept behind it is really compelling and people like co-op for god's sake but it was always limited to the Wii or the 3DS or the or the PSP. Um, three of two of those consoles, which uh, ended up having a somewhat more limited following here in the U.S. So. Well, I mean, there there was a Wii U version, which I thought was really good for what it oh, was. Oh, right, yes, there was a Wii U and, version, uh, which has the, the smallest, uh, which has the smallest install base of any Nintendo console <laughs> wow. ever. Wow, outside of that. Virtual Boy, no, it's it's oh, like the Wii U it was. Itself? It was like half of that of the GameCube. Yikes! Yeah, but um, that was that was the only way to play three U online, just like on the internet. Period was uh the Wii U version, the three DS version could not go online. So, um, that's why I played that one and I liked it. If if they would just make a a straight port of every game for something else, not even even touching up the graphics, I'd be fine with it because uh, this is getting into a Monster Hunter conversation. But I can yeah. only play uh, an online game with my three DS for so long before my hands and body start to hurt. And my arms start to go numb from holding a thing up for so long. Anyway, it doesn't really matter like how much how popular it gets or how much it sells at the end of the day, as long as it keeps coming out here in the US and I can play it. So yeah, that's what I it agree. comes down to. And I really want Dragon Quest Eleven on the NX. But let's move on, Bob. Um, last week you posted a really good feature. Oh, well, thank um, you. True Tales of Localization. Hell. Um, hell. <laughs> That's right. I said a, I said a damn hell ass swear on our website. Uh, so, uh, could you like kind of give us an overview of some of the stories and like some of the things that you learned in writing about this? Well, I, uh, some people might not know, but I actually did localization work for uh, Atlas for a while, and uh, before I worked for One Up, and then in between One Up and US Gamer, I localized games for them. I don't speak Japanese. I don't read it. I just polish up the raw scripts that come in, and uh, you know they put those in the game, but. That experience and just being a fan of Japanese games in general led me to uh, think of an idea like there's been a lot of misconceptions about what localization is and how easy it is. So I want to reach out to people who have done this in the past with some particularly difficult projects and and talk to them, get their stories and show how far we've come and just like the sheer difficulty in moving something from one language to, to another because it is not a literal thing that you're doing. It requires a lot more nuance. And it's very subject to your preferences, but it's it's a it's a supremely difficult process in any case. And I wanted to look at the most difficult examples from the industry. So, what were some of the your favorite stories that you heard? I I I, I will set you up on this one. Okay. Actually. <laughs> I love the story of um, Titus. Oh yeah. Like how the laughing scene was localized. That's true. So. With Final Fantasy X, that was Square... I mean, Square had done voice acting in games before, but that was the first um, Final Fantasy with voice acting, and voice acting synced up to actual movements of mouth movements on the screen. So uh, the localizer, Alexander O. Smith, who you might recognize from things like Vagrant Story, Final Fantasy XII, uh, Phoenix Wright, he worked on that project um, within Square, and they were not really given a lot of information about how the voice process would work, but far too late in the process, they learned that their their audio clips that were replacing the Japanese audio clips had to be precise to the Japanese. There was no uh, over or under. It had to be exact or else it would screw up the animation. It would crash the game. So what Alexander found himself doing was rewriting scripts to, to fit these very specific mouth movements, these very specific times right down to the frame. Like he was explaining how uh, in, Jap- in Japan, uh, if you want to say yes, it's just like hype. It's like you're just making a vowel sound and cutting it off with your throat. Uh, saying yes 
requires a lot more uh, frames of animation and frames for sound because that S uh, sound drags out. So you have to figure out ways to get around even simple things like saying yes. So you'll may, you might notice that Yuna and uh, the rest of the characters go, mm, a lot instead of saying yes or yeah or whatever. I mean, there are just so many little things that he did to account for the, these insane restrictions on what could and could not be said within the English language version of the game. And he managed to make, I would say, uh, a flawed... Uh, localization but he but one that was actually passable i mean something always seemed off to me and and just knowing what he had to go through explains everything uh to do with that localization at least in terms of voice acting and in terms of the laughing scene okay uh, i mean you are there's an argument that's made within this piece that what we got in america was actually quite a bit better than what it was in japan Yes, I mean, uh, this may this may irk some people, but um, Alex was talking about how um, uh, the melodrama is much more heightened in Japan, and his job as a localizer making things for an American audience is to sort of temper that melodrama and make it less over the top, less ridiculous. But there was no getting around that in the uh, the with the laughing scene. Like there is no way to massage that to make it not. Uh, not so on the nose, not so over the top. And he did the best he could, and he was explaining how, um, within the feature, the one of the scriptwriters for the game, I believe it was Nojima, he was actually taking improv classes at the time, and an improv exercise you do to sort of loosen up is to fake laugh, and that sort of becomes real laughter, and you get to you know, be more touch w- in touch with your body and your movement and stuff like that. So he sort of adapted that to Final Fantasy X, which leads to one of the more awkward uh, scenes in the game, which... Uh, Alexander O. Smith will even agree it's it's not it's not a very convincing scene in Japanese, but it makes a little more sense within within the context of the game. Not so much when you're viewing it on YouTube itself. But um, that scene always stood, stood out to me as a, a slightly embarrassing part of that game. One where I was like, while it was happening, I believe I was like, okay, time to shut my bedroom door. I don't want my mom or sister seeing me playing this right now. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I this is this is kind of weird. But uh, yeah, like stories like that. I mean, um, obviously we're dealing with a much much more advanced tools. Uh, much a much higher standard of things but a lot of these stories were from the past just showing how far we've come and um even though we've come such a far away translation and localization is still not easy and you're still not going to please everybody but um i believe like i chose some pretty notable games um final fantasy 11 sorry final fantasy 10 probably the most notable i also talked to uh jeremy blaustein who uh did localizations for games like snatcher metal gear solid silent hill 2 and 3 he did the translation for Dragon Warrior 7 when it came out here in 2001, and that sounds like the most harrowing localization project uh, I've ever heard in my life. Uh, Was he doing that one alone? Like, how big of I believe he, he had around, like, 10 to 12 uh, translators, something like that, or uh, localizers, whatever, editors. Um, but if you look at the uh, the feature itself, I have, a, I have a, a photo of the entire Dragon Quest 12 script, which takes up the entirety of like a medium-sized ikea bookshelf all in binders it was at some dragon quest uh, event they just had like the script on display and he had to translate with his team that entire script and make it work within the context of a consistent narrative and the fact that it the localization just comes off as a little stiff is a miracle it could have been much much worse but stories like that are what i wrote about within that um within that cover story you know so much of the talk this year has been about uh, localization and like people being mad because such and such got cut from Fire Emblem or from uh, Tokyo Mirage Festival sessions or things like that. Uh, last night I got together with a friend and for whatever reason we ended up talking about Final Fantasy Thirteen. Okay. Um, and that reminded me that Final Fantasy XIII actually has a real great example of a localization success story. So maybe people forget that there is a character named Saz in that game. Oh, uh, yeah. And Saz is, uh, he's, well, his defining characteristic in Final Fantasy XIII is that he has a son. I thought it was, uh, he has an afro. <laughs> he has an afro with a chocobo in it. I mean, his name is basically named after his afro. I don't know if you know the story behind that. No, I, I didn't. Uh, I mean, it's kind of, uh, it's a little iffy in terms of their intent, but it was like, oh, yes, uh, his hair reminds us of suds and beer, so we're going to call him Saz. Oh, so, okay. So, <laughs> yeah, that, that's that's the origin of Saz. Um, it's a character defined by his afro. <laughs> uh, and the fact that he's, well, he's black. Yeah, um, yeah. And he... 
in the Japanese version, he puts on a very Richard Pryor-esque kind of in Superman 3 performance. Oh, yeah. Where he's just like screaming. He's like, oh, my God, we're all going to die. And it's like extremely over the top. And it's kind of clear that he's the butt of the jokes for a lot of that game and isn't necessarily meant to be taken seriously. And I was like, oh, man, I wonder what they're going to do with this kind of silly character for Final Fantasy XIII's localization here in America. Um, Because I think that in Japan, there isn't quite as much sensitivity toward racial issues as it pertains to, uh, well, the black community and that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, we saw we saw things like that with uh, games like Resident Evil Five, where it was like you're borrowing imagery that that might look cool to you, but you don't understand the context, so it's not coming off the way you want it to. Right, uh, and of course, like Barrett is an example. Yes, of, exactly. Like a lot of people are like rolling their eyes at this character. We are. I, I do want to see how Barrett is remade in Final Fantasy VII. Is he going to be a, a Mister T figure again, or? Uh... I think he's going to end up being a Mister T figure again. Really? Okay. I I want I want to. I, I mean, be have you you watched the uh, the gameplay demos and everything, right? I don't think I have actually. Oh, they did um the demo last year at the PlayStation Experience, oh, and okay. you actually saw like gameplay, and they were showing scenes from the the opening raid on the reactor, and you actually saw Barrett talking, and he seemed fairly similar to how he was portrayed was in Final say, Fantasy VII. Mister T is still alive. He could do the dub. <laughs> it only makes sense. <laughs> makes total sense. But my my point with Saws was that they did a fantastic job with him and made him the most sympathetic character in the game. He he became like kind of the voice of reason in that game, like maybe the only sane man where like everybody else was kind of crazy and kind of kooky and kind of over the top. Like he was kind of along the ride and you could identify for with his desire to find a son like his almost desperate desire to find a son and i mean kind of hats off to the writing and the in the voice acting in that one because they really salvaged that character uh but all, at the same time we also got the immortal line moms are tough in the fir- in the first <laughs> minute which did feel like an I, I like what is this like a it felt like a kicks commercial or something like that i really want to go back and play final fantasy 13 no you don't and i don't no <laughs> When, have, when was the last time you played it? Have you played it before? Oh yeah, I reviewed it. Okay, I didn't well, review it. No, I did the guide for it, which is even worse. I, I had inklings of that when I, I I downloaded the PC version when it came out a year or so ago, and I was like, maybe I'll play through this again. I enjoyed it, but then you realize like, oh, I can't actually play this until like hour third. Again, it's the same thing we talked about like six years ago. Like it never it never lets you play until it's completely sure you dummy that you can get every every possible mechanic and that's still very frustrating even even more so after you've actually finished the game you're like can i just have access to all these mechanics oh no i can't i'm good yeah no they went really over the top with the tutorialization and that was one thing we were actually discussing in our conversation last night but i think the flip side of that is that the actual boss encounters in particular were really really good they were yeah i do like the battle system and i liked it even more in uh 13-2 I didn't. I actually thought that it fell apart in thirteen two. Well, I mean, the balance falls apart at the halfway point, but that ba- that battle system is still there, and I and I liked playing with it without having to wait to get to all the meats of it. Yeah, that was ultimately my problem with Final Fantasy XIII's battle system was that it relied too heavily on these extremely carefully balanced um, scenarios that stemmed from the fact that you were basically running on a straight line through the entire yeah. game. That's true. They knew who they knew what you were going to be fighting. They knew what level you'd be at and things like that. So, yeah, which is fine, but not necessarily RPG ish. More action game ish. Which, yeah. uh, whatever. Um, so, is there anything else you want to share from your localization feature? I mean, I encourage people to read it, but I, I should have tantalized you with a few of the stories. It, it really, I think. Um, should shed light on the difficulties of localization and why, if you are picky about uh, localization, why things can't always be the way you want them to be. And that's not me trying to be patronizing. It just, it's such a tricky prospect. It's such an imperfect art, just translation in general, that um, we should really respect the people that do it and make games playable in English. And um, we've come so far that I feel like it's thanks to these people like Jeremy and Alex uh, that we have really good localizations these days, and we should be thankful to them for, you know, being pioneers, making things better than just, like, acceptable. 
Yeah, no, you're, you really said it when you said that it was an extremely tricky art, because I took a localization test once. Um, I took 8.4's localization test on a whim just to see, like, how hard it would be. And it was really freaking hard because yes. <laughs> you're not only thinking about how you would write the line and you're trying to be faithful to the context of the original language, but you have lots of like barriers. Uh, you have like lots of artificial restrictions in terms of like character count and like w literal space within the box and everything. And like, I mean, you were talking about in Final Fantasy X where you literally had it had to fit with the Japanese exactly. Like, I can't even imagine doing the entire script like that. And they made it look so seamless. It's actually really incredible. Yeah. I mean, there there are some odd parts to Final Fantasy X, just the way characters talk and just, just sort of like stiltedness to a lot of it. But again, I, now knowing how it was made, it, it feels like it's a miracle that it even became that that good in the end. All right, so go check out Bob's localization article, True Tales of Localization Hell. That's right. There's two oh. F-words in there, too, so... Oh, my God. That's real journalism, if you can swear. That's what I learned. That's what we learned. Uh, go check it out on usgamer.net. All right, continuing onward. Uh, this is the 25th anniversary of the Super Nintendo, which... Oh, yeah. It's kind of crazy if you think about it. Um, it is. It, what's crazy for me because um, I, I had been freelancing. I've been freelancing for like 15 years, but when I moved out to the Bay Area to work for One Up, it was the 20th anniversary of the SNES. So now I feel like it's time for me to start repeating myself until I die. When Retronauts started in 2006, was there argument over whether the Super Nintendo was um, retro or not yet, or was there, oh, or I, were people pretty much like saying, no, the PlayStation isn't retro? Just the Super Nintendo and the Nintendo. I'm and sure. The Atari. I mean, people are such sticklers. I'm sure that uh, in in 2006, when the SNES was only 15, I'm sure people were like, "Well, it's not Atari, so or it's not NES, so yeah, who cares?" But and the um, GameCube's 15 now. Yeah, yeah. But uh, is, uh, so like thinking about like that gap in the distance is like, oh, the GameCube definitely feels old now. But it does, yeah. It's still hard to wrap my mind around it being retro. About 3D games being retro, yeah. I mean, but. As we get older, people's first systems are going to start being like the Xbox 360 and the PS3, and we're going to have to deal with that. So yeah, it's all a matter of perspective. One of uh, 8.4's interns is like 21, and he was like, yeah, my first system was pretty much the N64. And then, and I'm just like, wow, <laughs> you're so young. Yes, our modern N64 kids are now entering the workplace. They're, they're, they are our youngest adults now, so... But the Super Nintendo, I, I mean, I kind of want to focus on the Super Nintendo yeah. because oh, it was so important for RPGs as we know them. That's um, where... Certainly I, JRPGs. Yeah. I mean, that's where I, I played Final Fantasy and Dragon Warrior and stuff on NES, but Super Nintendo is really where my, my love of RPGs, uh, specifically JRPGs, solidified and became like, this is all I want to buy, this is all I want to play. Uh, thankfully, I, I play other stuff now. I'm not so much set in my ways, but I was pretty much just an RPG kid and like buying everything that came out, reading all the previews, pre-ordering everything. Just, yeah, it, it really solidified my love of the genre. It also brought with it its own kind of mystique because, I mean, of course, RPGs were not only not big in America back in, say, uh, on consoles at least, back oh, no. in 1991 through 1994, but they were kind of looked down upon. Um, it, it was very strange. People were like, well, our console RPGs just aren't going to translate to America. Uh, and the Super so as a result, like the Super Nintendo certainly had plenty of great RPGs that came out here, but lots of RPGs that never did. And in that respect, so we had like really big, important games like Dragon Quest V, Final Fantasy V, Seiken Densetsu Three, like a huge chunk of the Fire Emblem series, which uh, simply never came over here, um, or at least did not come over here until much later. So that gave the Super Nintendo like this kind of, I suppose, hardcore cred. Like, yeah, maybe you've played Final Fantasy IV or Final Fantasy II, but did you know that it was actually called Final Fantasy IV in Japan uh -huh. and that there's a Final Fantasy They've been lying V? To us. Yeah, I mean... The the state of RPGs uh, at that time made a lot of publishers gun shy. In fact, like it, it's funny that like Capcom for Breath of Fire one, they were like, uh, "Hey Square, how about you publish this? Uh, we don't want to." And that, that was such, such a weird phenomenon. Like they were that gun shy about Breath of Fire. Well, uh, it was seen as a very niche thing. Yeah, but it, 
The upshot of all this is that the Super Nintendo was in by many people seen as the golden the golden console for JRPGs like that it never got that it was never as good after that and uh-huh. uh yeah, you certainly there are a ton of RPGs from that system that still hold up incredibly well today and is home to maybe the greatest uh JRPG ever made which is Chrono Trigger Ooh. but we're going to do we're just going to take a look at a few key franchises um, from Super Nintendo history. And in this episode, I'm going to talk about Dragon Quest, which, for a little context, uh, there had been four Dragon Quests by this point. Uh, Dragon Quest 1, 2, 3, and 4 all came out on the NES. And Dragon Quest V marked the first transition over to the Super Famicom. Uh, it was pretty early on in its life cycle, too. I think it was like 1992 that it came out. Yeah, it's not it's not even a great looking game. I I, no. I don't think uh, Chunsoft who developed it were really used to the SNES at this point. So it looks like it's a very plain looking game that's a little bit more colorful than an NES game. But uh, six would be the Dragon Quest that really looks great. It like really takes advantage of the hardware like a, like a SquareSoft game did. Yeah, absolutely. But at the same time, like I think would five you is a better that... game though. Oh, I think five is a better game as yeah. well. Would you say that? So. I, I tend to think of Dragon Quest 4, 5, and 6 all in the same category because they all came out on the DS, which is when I like really started getting my true introduction to the series. Um, and I think of Dragon Quest 4 as being fairly ambitious in the way that it split up the split up the characters into like multiple chapters, right? Like it had like lots of different storylines and it was already kind of trying something new and different. Yeah, I mean, um, every every Dragon Quest after, I mean, 1, 2, and 3 are all great, and 3 is a really big, ambitious game, uh, kind of like an open-world game of its time. But I think from 4 onwards, every Dragon Quest had its own, like, uh, interesting gimmick or interesting, like, new uh, way of doing your standard Dragon Quest stuff. And that's true of 5 and 6. Well, it was the interesting thing about Dragon Quest on the Super Nintendo, though, was uh, this was maybe a real opportunity to kind of step forward and like be a lot more ambitious but that they really stuck to the previous formula and that ended up uh kind of setting the precedent for the series like through all the way up until well dragon quest uh 11 almost so yeah i think i think their ambition was like the most revolutionary thing they did in five was in the narrative just the way the story was told like uh telling a human's history from their birth until their like rise to like greatness i feel like um uh, we don't see games that trace uh, a person's life like that that's not maybe like a simulation game and i feel like that was one of the first rpgs to do that uh, you know like looking at dragon quest i think that's a it's a really good example of how like the Super Nintendo, would you say that it has one of the biggest gaps between launch and then what it ultimately became in terms of graphics? Because when the earliest Super Nintendo games, like with a few exceptions, looked almost like NES games, and Dragon Quest V is an example of that. And then by the time that, say, Final Fantasy VI came out, uh, Chrono Trigger, Donkey Kong Country, like kind of those games, like developers were just pushing that system to the freaking limits it was really incredible yeah i don't know if i go as far as say like a lot of games look like the nice games i feel like dragon quest might have been an outlier with five and that how how uh kind of low tech it looked but it did take uh developers a while to get really understand the snes and by the time like 94 or 95 hits uh it was like a complete next level i mean just compare final fantasy 5 to final fantasy 6 um, and I mean, even Final Fantasy four looks kind of primitive compared to five. Uh, Pretty so, primitive, yeah. I would even say. I mean, like everything is so tiny and like just kind of like not detailed. So yeah, it took them a while to understand, like uh, to change their uh, expectations for what a game should look like too. The thing that I think of um, when I think of those early Super Nintendo games is that the graphics were still kind of primitive, but you didn't really notice it at the time because it's still the colors were a lot more vibrant usually and it sounded a lot better too and the soundtrack was usually a, was obviously a lot better because the soundtrack uh the sound the super nes sound chip was kind of like the next level um so 
a game like Dragon Quest V might not look that much better, but it sure does sound a lot better. Oh, yeah. That's for sure. Um, another thing that kind of stands out to me is while Dragon Quest was relatively, um, I-, I would say, conservative with its visuals until Dragon Quest VI, it, uh, I-, I feel like it was a lot more ambitious with its storytelling. Um, what do you think of that? No, I think so. I, I think like a lot of the Final Fantasy stuff at this point was just like a very, very melodramatic uh, anime style episodic storytelling. And uh, Dragon Quest does usually go for an episodic format, but with five, it was very much like a very linear progression through a uh, single person's life. And they've not revisited that, and it still feels like a very unique, a unique approach for RPGs in general. Yeah, and then when you had Dragon Quest six, um, it. In some ways, I mean, not quite, but it had the whole two worlds thing was kind of a was kind of a popular trope back on the Super Nintendo era. Yeah, I mean, I feel like uh, Yuji Horii, who worked on Chrono Trigger, um, brought some of those ideas over to Dragon Quest. They don't work quite as well because in Chrono Trigger, the different uh, time periods are much more distinct than the the kind of light world, dark world of Dragon Quest Six. But I, I can feel like where his inspirations came from, at least. Did you play Dragon Quest VI on the Nintendo DS? Yes, in fact, I'm in, I'm in like the middle of a playthrough right now, and I really want to go back to it before I play seven. Let's. Uh, I I doubt that will actually happen, but I that's the one game I haven't finished in the series. I ended up reviewing it, and I think I was a little harsh on it. It's not. I mean, I feel like the heartbeat developed Dragon Quests, which are six and seven. Uh, they kind of focus more on, uh, content than making, like, meaningful content, so they're kind of bloated as far as games go. I feel like, like, they were sort of, like, a taste of what the PlayStation generations of RPGs would be like, and, um, yeah, like, I feel like the job system doesn't work that well, and there's just a little too much to do. They're both a little overwhelming. Yeah, the job system, it, I remember it being really flawed, but I don't remember exactly what about it it was flawed. Now, they could have changed this for the 3DS version, and I hope they did, but um, what happens is um, you 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 know, you sorry, you pick up a job, and uh, you join that job class like you would in a Final Fantasy, but there, there's no AP or JP, like ability points or job points. Uh, the game just tells you, go fight strong monsters, and if you do that enough, you'll rise in, in job rank. And there was really no way of knowing which jobs to prioritize because if you master one job and another job uh you can you can actually get a new job out of that so a lot of it was like no do your own research first and then come into this game knowing what you're going to do and i I think the 3ds version gives you a bit more guidance with that but a lot of it was just like not shown to the player which i felt was a huge problem in a game with like 30 different job classes like a, a, a crazy amount of job classes so uh i just feel like the lack of information to the player was a real problem with the class system in that game the thing that I feel like Dragon Quest VI's lasting legacy was just that it was gigantic. Oh, it's huge! Yeah, it's like it's it went it went big. Like this was and this... seven went even bigger. I mean, like yeah. again, the uh, the heartbeat developed games. I think they were like, let's make the biggest RPG we can make. Period. Yeah, but when Enix was making Dragon Quest VI, they were like, they were kind of pushing like kind of the best that the super nintendo the best graphics the super nintendo could output at that time yeah it's up there with chrono trigger and final fantasy 6 in terms of just how good it looks uh i mean this is the first dragon quest where all the enemies are animated in battle instead of just being static sprites they really went all out to make like a a just a a pure beautiful dragon quest experience that still really holds up like i honestly feel like the snes version looks way better than the ds version Oh, I completely agree. Yeah. And I think the DS version, um, like, it lost some of what made it special because when Dragon Quest VI came out, it was a phenomenal looking game. And that was like, first of all, that was like the its main selling point, that and how big it was. And then when it came out on the DS, it didn't stand out quite as much because it had basically the same graphics as 4 and 5. Uh, its yeah. main thing was that it was really big it had class system and it had the kind of the two worlds concept a lot of the ds problems though in terms of visuals was it it, it traded the intricate sprite work of the backgrounds for kind of clunky ds polygons that were poorly textured so you you missed a lot of that great hand-drawn artwork that was in six because they had to sort of upgrade it for the sake of the ds 
it still looked good on the DS. No, it looks good. Wrong. It's a good looking game, but man, that SNES or Super Famicom version is just gorgeous. It's really gorgeous. Check it out if you have it on YouTube or whatever. It's worth it's worth looking into. But like at the risk of kind of going beyond the bounds of this conversation, Dragon Quest Seven was a lot more visually conservative um, on yes. the PlayStation than yes. Dragon Quest Six. Uh, yeah, in fact, I think 7 is a much uglier game than 6 because Very uh, much so. like with the DS version of 6, instead of having, you know, those great uh, sprite backgrounds, it's just like, um, it's polygonal stuff on the PlayStation, which can be good, but it looks like a circa 97 PlayStation game that unfortunately was re- released in Japan in 2000 and in America in 2001. It-, it was a game fraught with production problems, and I, honestly, it probably came out much, much later than they wanted it to, which is why, again... They made it so big to make up for the, the constant delays, years of delays on that game. So do you think that Dragon Quest's identity was pretty much pretty well set in the NES era? Or did it kind of really start to find what it would eventually become in the Super Nintendo era? Uh, to be honest, in America, I think Dragon Quest did not have an identity until Dragon Quest VIII uh, released in 2005 here. Well, I feel like because 5 and 6 never came out here. Yeah, like... What happened with us was um, 4 came out in 1992, NX tried a few other non-Dragon Quest RPGs through their American branch. That didn't work out either, so they closed up shop. And we went from 92 to 2001 without any Dragon Warrior games, Dragon Quest games. So I feel like the uh, big... seven. Uh, that 7 was oh, right, 2001. 2001. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So like, I feel like 2004 was the big, like, uh, not a reboot, but sort of like a let's get this going for real. Let's put actual work into this. Let's make a, a localized version of eight that is worthwhile for Americans. Let's 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 write a story bible or like a bible for this universe that says here's how characters talk. Here's the kind of flair we want to give to the world. And from there, I think um, we we're still in that period of Dragon Quest Resurgence. I don't think it has truly died yet, and I'm happy for that. But I don't think like they they ever really knew what they were doing until 2004. Like. I feel like that was the first time that they really said, we can't just give up on this. We have to make this appealing. We have to give it more than just a standard localization. We need to make this worthwhile. So to me, at least, that's when... So 7 came out, sorry, 8 came out, 9 came out, 4, 5, and 6 came out for DS. Like, we just had so much Dragon Quest. There was a quiet period, but it's starting up again. We we just got Heroes. We're getting Builders 7 and 8 this year. Like, I feel like we're good now. Uh, I think those Dark Days are behind us. Yeah, and hopefully we'll get 11. But I think that the Super Nintendo, as for the American localization, like, I mean, Dragon Quest or Dragon Warrior was infamously kind of a flop on the NES. And we still got Dragon Warrior 2, 3, and 4 on the NES. But the Super Nintendo was when um, they officially gave up kind of on the series over here. And it was just kind of acknowledged that Dragon Quest was dead. Um, and it was probably only the revival, or it was the only the explosion of popularity in RPGs on the PlayStation that like kind of revived its fortunes. And it's actually a real shame that Dragon Quest Seven ended up not being that great in the grand scheme of things. And you can argue with me all day long about this. But if they had, A, put out Dragon Quest Seven, and this is, again, getting out on the <laughs> bounds, if they had put Dragon Quest Seven earlier on on the PlayStation's life cycle and it had been maybe a bit more, no, artistic. I'm, I'm not saying that it needed to have, like, Final Fantasy Seven level graphics, but it needed to be kind of attractive. It's an ugly game. I mean, I could, yeah. I could tell what they're going for, but it didn't really work. And it was a developer, again, that had never developed for a PlayStation before, and they were figuring it out, and it took them so long because it was just so new to them. And then they folded it right after the, the game release, so, um, yeah. Is it fair to say the Super Nintendo was the height of Dragon Quest? You know what? I I don't I don't know. I don't think so. I think maybe Final Fantasy, it's more fair to say that, uh, in terms of just um, the quality of the games. But uh, I don't know. I feel like Dragon Quest, uh, they've, they've never really let me down. I don't feel like it's peaked at any point. In fact, 9 is my favorite. Uh, it's by far my favorite at this point. So I'm not so sure if that's as true for Dragon Quest. I feel like it was sort of like a, uh, a less productive period for that series um, than what Square Enix or Enix at that point wanted from the series. I think a lot of Japanese Dragon Quest fans would tell you that it peaked with the Famicom. I, no, I'm yeah. You're totally right about that. I mean, like that was just um, 
right now we're like we go between four and five years per game and and back then it was like maybe one to one and a half years between every game and it was just like just super prolific super super popular super in everyone's face everyone was talking about it and that's much different than waiting five years between six and seven for for a japanese audience yeah you actually really see like the decline because it's like you get four games on the nes you get two on the snes and then from that point on you only get one per console got one on the playstation playstation 2 um and then the nintendo ds and um and now fine and then we had the random mmo and now finally we're finally gonna get dragon quest 11 and in a way i'm glad that they're not just pumping these out that we're not on dragon quest 22 yeah because the amount of craft and the amount of care that they put in these games is really evident. And I imagine that the degree of difficulty has only gone up as they've gone, they've moved to more and more sophisticated consoles. And you can see that with the Super Nintendo, right? I mean, the amount of work that had to go into Dragon Quest VI, which was at that time the undisputed biggest and most beautiful Dragon Quest you would ever seen and was on par with as the most beautiful RPGs on that system. Like, it really went above and beyond and that stuff takes time to make <laughs> yeah it, yeah i was just thinking about it the first four games were 86 87 88 and 90 that is just incredible i mean a different era of game development just just but that compared to the modern era of dragon quest that we're in for like four games in four years it's just like we did not know how good we had it at least uh, the japanese audience didn't well you could say that uh, <clears throat> dragon quest was in a really really good place with the super nintendo and that even in Japan, it dropped off quite a bit because simply by virtue of the fact that Dragon Quest Seven didn't come out for so long. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, like, um, it's if they had their druthers, if they had everything lined up the way they wanted to, that game would have been like a 97 or 98 game. It would not have been a 2000 game. And I, I felt like that caused Enix to suffer a bit. And that might have helped them, uh, you know, decide to join up with Swear. I don't know all the factors that led to that, but I, I feel like... The lateness of Dragon Quest Seven really hurt them. Oh, Square, uh, Square was the one who wanted to join up with Annex because they were pretty much bankrupted by uh, Final right. Fantasy Spirits Within. I mean, actually, I, I heard they were in talks before that, but the mm. the movie actually delayed delayed <laughs> their uh, their talks. Is like we we're not so sure about this anymore. But I do think like just Dragon Quest Seven taking five years uh, kind of hurt annex in that era and again um they never hurt as bad as square did with the many, their many problems but uh seven was not a good time for them i would say that the super nintendo was the was mark's dragon quest artistic peak mm. um the series itself has been so um consistent in its quality and it, it doesn't have the peaks and troughs that final fantasy does that it's a little bit harder to pick out um a true peak but i i am firm in my belief that dragon quest 5 is not only the best in the series but maybe one of the best rpgs period uh so and that came out on the super nintendo and relatively early on so it's up there for me for sure so even though there were only just a couple games on the super nintendo like those were two very very freaking good games i agree I, I still prefer the the mechanics and the depth of nine, but five is very special and it deserves to be uh, you know lauded. And ultimately, it didn't advance that much from the Famicom games in terms of structure, but it did give it more freedom yeah, to experiment to with stuff like the monster recruitment, as you said, um, the much bigger scope of Dragon Quest six. Uh, it gave them room to play i suppose and that was good for the series in the long run i agree yeah. all right so we're going to continue on with this we're going to pick a few more series if there if there's a long-running franchise that you want me to highlight in particular on the super nintendo uh just let me know you can email me at cat.bailey at usgamer.net or send me a message on twitter or dm me on usgamer i'm cat.bailey but before we go bob I have one last thing that I'm going to do. Sure. Um, so last week, I p- asked people to pitch their favorite underrated RPGs. And uh, quite a few people ended up responding. And since I have you here, I feel Ooh. like this is one that um, you would definitely appreciate. This is from Brian Wang. And he writes to me, one ra- underrated RPG I want to draw your attention to is Shadow Hearts Covenant on the uh. PlayStation 2. 
and this is the one that stands out for him. The game takes place in Europe during World War I, and the pseudo real-time world in place was a breath of fresh air for me compared to the more commonplace full-on fantasy or sci-fi RPG settings at the time. At the same time, the developers did not feel their cast of characters had to be constrained by historical accuracy that's, and populated sure. your party with a gay vampire wrestler who wielded a coffin as a weapon, an old toy maker accompanied by a lifelike child puppet he referred to as his daughter, that's creepy, you dress her up in different outfits to grant her different elemental attacks, and Princess Anastasia Romanoff. <laughs> it was also one of the first instances I can think of where a menu-driven battle system also incorporated a QTE button press event, so you had to pay attention during fights. Wasn't that in Super Mario RPG? Yes, but uh, Shadow Hearts, uh, the best way to explain it is like every attack is sort of like playing a golf game. Uh, that's, that's how you're stopping. You're, you're like stopping a meter. You're literally seeing a meter, like a little circle. I think it's called like the, the Wheel of Judgment. For everything you do in the game, a Wheel of Judgment will pop up. And there are like certain zones you can hit it in in order to make your attack stronger or just regular or even miss your attack. So it's more of a, an explicit, like in terms of pre- presenting the information to the, the player, it's more of an explicit approach to that. So those are the top reasons that this made a game a winner for me and underrated because the series was never continued after its sequel, Shadow Hearts the New World, which didn't quite rise to the same level. It's pretty good. I, I like that one too. I, I finished both of these and I do feel like these are super overlooked gems. Number one, uh, let's let's talk about <laughs> let's talk about this game was published by Midway in America. <laughs> what oh my the God. hell? That's yeah. crazy. Like I I bet most people don't even remember Midway at this point because yeah. it's been out of business for so long. Yeah, I'm trying to like I mean they did a lot of it just the, what what a weird era to have a Midway publish a, a JRPG. But yeah, like uh, what I like about Shadow Hearts is uh, l- along with the um Along with the fun battle system in which you can, um, there are many things you can do with that, with that timing system. Like, you can wear an item that, like, removes the actual markers from that Wheel of Judgment. So if you memorize when to hit the button, uh, wearing that item will let your attacks be more powerful if you sort of have the muscle memory for that meter, if that makes any sense. Like, it removes those visual indicators. So if you're good at that, you can have more powerful attacks. But if you're not, then you're going to miss a lot. But it plays with that idea in a lot of fun ways. There, there are lots of ways to combo your attacks. Um, the characters are really fun. I love the alternate alternate history approach, which is like, it, it's so weird that it zeroes in on World War One. It feels like a, a fairly unpopular war to, uh, to draw inspiration from. But it just, it's just a fun, sort of lighthearted um, uh, RPG romp that never takes itself too seriously. And has just a lot of fun characters and things to do. And I, I, now I really want to go back to play it. And I, I wish this was available digitally in some way. Because uh, it's a shame that so much of these games are kind of lost unless you have a PS2 or the disc itself. It's kind of the quintessential PlayStation 2 RPG, right? A period where like uh, JRPGs were just taken for granted, right? People, nobody was saying, we need to fix the JRPG. The old way is broken. It, yeah, there's a long history of saying JRPGs are dead, and I think it started around the PS2 era. But at the same time, within that, like JRPGs were still very comfortable playing within a particular framework, and Shadow Hearts is no different. But they, but then adding on your own like ideas with the battle systems and having your own quirky setting, um, and in that respect, I think Shadow Hearts like worked pretty well. It wasn't until uh, and as you got into the generations after that, you started getting like developers wringing their hands about like trying to come up with trying to shake up the formula as it were. Um, but Shadow Hearts was, I wouldn't exactly call it the golden era of RPG, JRPGs, but it was maybe the silver era. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was an interesting B tier RPG uh, that I don't think we get anymore. Like I feel like we either get Square Enix uh like or dragon quest stuff in terms of jrpgs and like persona or and then we get like c-list uh like waifu rpgs for your vitas and your ps3s or like even star ocean is kind of like that now where it's like eh, i'm glad you tried but it's really not worthwhile like i i do miss the the weirdo games like shadow hearts and um resonance of fate and things like that that were uh, not as high budget but they had ambitions and they were not as pandering or you know low effort as a lot of the games i'm seeing now I mean, you could argue that uh, the Trails of Trails of Cold Steel and those kinds of games are your mid-tier JRPGs. That's true. Your... Yeah, I could be being a little unfair, but I feel like I don't see they don't they don't have as much of a presence. I think as they used to. 
No, but that's how it is for like all games, right? Yeah. I mean, the <laughs> the, the middle RPG has been cut out. Um, and it, I mean, you still see them. Like you could say that Obsidian now makes middle tier RPGs with Pillars of Eternity, and that your the, the Divinity Original Sin series um, is made by like a hundred people in Belgium. Um, but both of those games also go for a very retro kind of look and like a very kind of classical kind of approach. And I would say Shadow Hearts would not say that it's retro. Like Shadow Hearts at the time was a very good looking RPG. Yeah, and good. like actually pretty ambitious. Like it would be the equivalent of a triple A release today. Oh, for sure, yeah. And it's funny, like the developer uh, I believe it was called Sacknoth, um, I'm pretty sure, Nautilus. Nautilus became Sacknoth, whatever. The, the developer was actually funded by the composer of Secret of Mana with funding from SNK. They, they made the Koldeka, Koldelka? Kodelka, sorry. I never say that right. Uh, they made the, the RPG Kodelka for the uh, PS1. Shadow Hearts is like tangentially related to that, but I found it funny in reading up on this developer. It feels like all, all B-tier Japanese developers eventually become part of Marvelous, and that's exactly what happened <laughs> to Sacknot. Like, Marvelous is just like just this conglomeration of every publisher or developer that could not survive alone in Japan. They're just like a giant, like Cronenbergian creature with like different parts <laughs> stitched onto it. And they still make good games, but it's funny. Just like, Oh, whatever happened to this developer? Oh, they're part of marvelous now. Okay. Well, at least, at least they're doing something. Now I'm just imagining this Cronenbergian like RPG creature. It has the head of like uh, grasshopper studios and the, uh, <laughs> the neck of Sacknoth and, uh, the tail of Neverland, uh, I don't know. They just like a lot of a lot of uh, developers are now just marvelous, which is good. I mean, I'm I'm glad they're not like uh, they're not. They can still make games in whatever way they can. Now I want to go watch Rick and Morty. <laughs> All right. Um. Yeah. Keep sending in your pitches for lesser known RPGs. I would love to read them on the air. Um. You can send them to either cat.bailey at usgamer.net or PM me over on the US Gamers actual site cat.bailey oh and i just thought of one thing like it's weird that on the psn store for the ps4 we we get ps2 rpgs but they're just giving us the bad ones like we'll put Mm. shadow hearts on there i mean like dark cloud it's okay dark cloud 2 is way way better better. i think a lot of people would want to play dark cloud 2 oh for sure yeah i mean there's no reason to play dark cloud 1 if dark cloud 2 exists but okage shadow king uh not good i mean i like what it's trying to do but it's just kind of a bad rpg like I want good RPGs on the on the store, but I don't know what's stopping them. Persona Three Fez made it out, didn't it? And Persona Four. Um, I'm talking about PS2 PS2 classics. I'm not sure. Those not are sure. both PS2 classics, right? I'm, but I'm not sure if those versions are on the store. I think they're on the PS3. Is the thing? Yeah, I don't. Yeah. You can't get them on the PS4. It's, it's so stupid. In any case. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of, certainly plenty of PS2 RPGs that deserve love. And um, I think the PS4, like the PS2 classics, um, Shadow Hearts Covenant is the definition of a game that you would want to revisit. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I have a copy here, uh, but my PlayStation 2 is put away and it's going to take me a lot of effort to hook that bad boy up again. And I would honestly like to play through it again. It's a very, it's a very fun game to play through. It, it, it I feel like it's uh it's succinct it's like a 30 to 35 hour RPG which is like a dream to me now to have an RPG wrap up in 30 hours and I just had so much fun playing it back in the day and I really love to have more people be able to play it now we can play I am Setsuna that's like 20 hours that's true but I'd rather play Shadow Hearts Covenant all right we're out of time but Axe of the Blood God you can find us over on iTunes Stitcher Google Play iHeartRadio a whole bunch of places iHeartRadio yep I'm trying to get us on Spotify um so do me a favor go to stitcher go to itunes um leave us a review we would really appreciate it um positive negative whatever Um, we prefer positive because we love you so you should love us um you can reach us uh you can reach me at the underscore catbot you can reach bob um at bob servo be sure to check out our other podcasts uh from us to you which is our flagship podcast and of course check out retro knots which updates every monday and Bob, you have a podcast, Talking Simpsons. How's that going? It's going really well. Uh, we're at the end of the, the very end of the third season. Things are things are constantly getting better in the show, and uh, doing the show is so great. If you go to Talking Simpsons on the Laser Time Podcast Network, uh, LaserTimePodcast.com, 
you can download all the episodes or just look for Talking Simpsons in your podcast device. Uh, we've done like 60 of them so far, and we're, we're not going to stop until the show gets extremely bad. So, Third season, uh, I, I think third season is one of my favorites for sure. It, it totally like, it's rocks. Really, it's a yeah. classic. Ah, so much good stuff. Um, uh, so anything else to pitch? Oh, yeah, Twitch. Should go check out our Twitch streams. Uh, we're streaming pretty much every day right now. Um, Jeremy is doing a countdown of Super Nintendo Classics, which is kind of cool. And as the uh, the release schedule picks up a lot, we're going to be streaming a lot more. I did two days in a row of No Man's Sky, and then uh, we're going to do some Madden, and I may or may not stream some Super Robot Wars OG The Moon Dwellers, which once I get a chance to actually play it, I will be talking about on this podcast. So please look forward to that. And in any case, um, we'll be back next week. Um, Thanks for listening. For Bob and myself, we'll see you again next time. Until then, happy adventuring.